Let's pray together. Our God, how true it is that as we come here this morning, uh, we are not coming inviting you to come and to be in our presence. Rather, it is you who have come and invites us to come before you. You are the one that has invited us to come and to be in relationship with you. You are the one who has revealed yourself through your word so that we would come and be able to know who you are and to be transformed by you. You are the one who sent your son so that because of him, we who were once alienated and separated from God because of our sin could have reconciled relationship with him. You have done all the work. This is all about you. This is an opportunity for us to grow in our understanding of who you are and what you have done. Lord, your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword that your scripture even tells us. So even as we hear it, it has the ability to penetrate deep into our hearts, to, to convict us of sin, to remind us of truth, to comfort us with the gospel. And I am praying, I'm pleading with you this morning, Lord, would you do all of those things as we look to your word. Your spirit has been given to us as a gift so that uh, the things that we cannot do, he does for us. And so I pray, our Lord, that we would depend greatly on, on the Spirit of God to accomplish this great work, that we would be able to see truth as it is, that we would be transformed by it, that we would live in obedience to it. You can do all of those things, and so we trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before I begin, I just want to start off by just admitting how challenging it is to preach on something like divorce. Because I realize that as soon as I even mention the word divorce, that it provokes all sorts of emotions and experiences and, and memories for all of us in our hearts and in our minds. And I realize that this is something that's deeply personal to so many of us who are sitting in this room. There's almost no sorrow that's as deep as the sorrow of a broken marriage. There really isn't. And so as I sit here, as we sit here together, and as we look to God's word, I realize that we're not just simply looking for a good sermon this week, or we're not just simply looking for a bunch of theological information that we can download into our brains. Instead, we are looking to God this week, that he would speak to us through his word, and that he would speak directly to even just the, the experiences and the circumstances that we have had in our own lives. For example, some of us grew up in homes where our parents were separated or divorced. And so we're all too familiar with just the, the heartache and the pain and the confusion that their relationship has caused us in our own lives. If, if we were to be honest, some of us are even still today trying to cope through that, trying to figure out what this means for us, how to move on from what we have seen in our lives. Or maybe some of us who are sitting here this morning have gone through divorce ourselves. Right? Maybe you were the victim of an unfaithful spouse. Or maybe you were the one who caused brokenness in your relationship. Whatever it may be, we are here maybe this morning, and somewhere along the way, our marriage came to an end. And maybe you're trying to figure out, what's next? What do I do? How do I move on from where I find myself? And then if we were to be honest with ourselves, some of us are here this morning, and maybe you feel like you're one step away from divorce. That if you were to be honest, maybe in your own homes, that there is really just no sense of peace anywhere. That anything and everything feels like it just uh, can lead to an argument. Anything can lead to you blowing up on one another based on any conversation. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, and if you were to be honest, maybe you're looking for a way out of what you find yourself in as well. 
You see, our stories and our experiences may differ greatly from one another, but I do believe, regardless of what our experiences may be, that all of us sitting in this room have, in one way or another, been affected by a broken marriage or, a broken di- uh, or experiences of divorce. And so the reason why I really do feel challenged in preaching this sermon this morning is because my real hope for us and my real hope is that I would be able to shepherd you this morning. Because I really do realize that, that what I'm talking about this morning, what we're listening to God's word on this morning, has real implications on real people that have real hurts. And so my desire is not at all to be insensitive or hurtful to any of you, because I know that this topic has the ability to uncover all sorts of wounds in our lives. Uh, fresh wounds and, and all old wounds and, and just ongoing wounds, whatever it might be. And so a part of me really does hope that, that I wish that I would be able to kind of sit down and, and have these conversations with you individually instead, right, in light of your own unique story and circumstances. Because even though God's truth is exactly the same, regardless of what your story may be, how to communicate that truth would look very different if we were having this conversation one-on-one. But obviously, as I stand here this morning, I don't have that luxury. I don't have that opportunity to do that. And so I really am depending greatly on the Holy Spirit of God, that he would take the words that are being communicated from this pulpit this morning, and that he would take those words and apply it directly to your lives in the way that you need to hear it this morning, in the way that it applies to you specifically in your life. So even as I begin, I want to say there is a chance that some of this will be painful for you that it will be offensive for you to hear. It will be hard for you to be able to swallow. But I do want to encourage you to be be able to stick with me to the end. My real hope and my real desire is that this would be a time of instruction and and correction and encouragement and hope for all of us who are in this room together this morning. And so with that being said, let's take a look this morning at Matthew chapter 5. Verses 31 to 32. It's what Princey read for us this morning. I'm going to read it again. This is 31 and 32. This is Jesus. He says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery adultery. It's just two verses long, but it's definitely a hard text, right? It it was hard for those who heard it 2,000 years ago, and it'll be hard for those of us who hear it in 2014. But before we take a moment to kind of break down what these verses are saying, I think it's important for us to consider the context of where Jesus is coming from. You see, when we read through these verses, when we read through chapter 5, what you'll hear Jesus saying now for the third time is this. He'll say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And so you'll hear this this, uh, set of phrases over and over again in chapter 5. And every time he does that, what what he's essentially trying to do is that he's trying to fight against the bad teaching of the religious leaders of that time. A, a group of men called Pharisees. And so a few weeks ago, we learned that the Pharisees were all about a sort of bare minimum type of obedience, right? They were constantly all about a, a loophole type of obedience. They were all about a 
technically I'm right type of obedience. And so, for example, right, when God's law says do not commit murder, they read that law and they say, check, right? I'm good, right? I haven't even come close to committing murder anywhere. I'm good. I'm, I'm basically a, a good person when it comes to looking at that commandment. And that's when Jesus says, that's great, but here's the thing. You see that anger that comes in your heart every time that that person comes around in your life? Or you see that, that frustration and that bitterness that comes in your heart every time you think of that particular person in your life? That's just as much a problem. You see, the law doesn't just mean that you should be against murder. It also means that you should be all about breathing life into people's lives. And that it should be all about you loving people who you are in relationship with. And so while you're okay with the bare minimum of not destroying someone or not murdering someone, you see the heart of the commandment is much more deeper than that. It's actually all about loving other people and actually being for other people, even people who make you angry. But you see, the Pharisees did, didn't get that, right? They, they created instead a world of loopholes and technicalities. They were doing the bare minimum to keep the law. And the worst part was that they were teaching other people to do exactly the same, right? And so what we see here in chapter 5 is just six different instances where Jesus says, you have been told this, but I say to you. And he's going constantly after the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that time, and correcting them in their bad teaching. And so today what we're doing is we're looking specifically at what the Pharisees' approach was on God's teaching on marriage. You see, what they had done was they'd taken the, the heart of God's law concerning marriage and reduced it to a technicality. And so what Jesus is doing right now in this section called the Sermon on the Mount is he's trying to set things right. And so what does he do? He starts off by saying this. He says, it was also said, or it was once said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So what is Jesus referring to? You see, actually, Jesus is referring the, the hearers back to a passage in the Old Testament, a section in, in a book called Deuteronomy in chapter 24. He's pointing them back to a Mosaic law back in Deuteronomy. So let me read for you what it says in Deuteronomy 24. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, in her hand, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. So everyone got that, right? <laughs> I'm joking. There, that's obviously a mouthful. So let me just try to break down for you as to what is going on here. You see, this Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 24, was being written during a time where, where men generally just had a low view of women, right? They had a poor view of women. And so during that time, it was a common practice for men to kick their wives out of their house for any and every reason. 
You see, whenever they felt like it, for whatever reason that they felt like, they would be able to kick their wives out of their home. And, and see, these ladies, when this happened to them, they would have no place to go. Because you see, they couldn't just return back home to mom and dad because that was a, a culture of honor and shame. And so to bring back a, a wife or a daughter, rather, who, who has gone through a failed marriage would be bringing shame into the household. And so she couldn't go back home because it would be filling the household with shame. So that wasn't an option. And, and then she couldn't just go out and, and maybe find a new job right? Find a job, make a living for herself, maybe find an apartment, maybe raise her children who have been kicked out with her, because that was an option because women didn't have opportunities to work like they, did, they do today. So that wasn't an option either, right? And then finally, they couldn't just go and, and find someone else and, and get remarried because without any type of proof of divorce, no one would be willing to marry her because they would be fearful that maybe she is still married, and they don't want to have to face that, right? So they can't go back home. They can't, make it, they can't find a job and make a living for themselves. And they can't just go and find somebody else because there's no opportunity for that. And so what was happening? It was destroying the lives of these women and causing them to suffer in such a variety of ways. And what we read is that during that time, it was just becoming rampant. It was becoming out of control. It was happening all over the place. And so what we're seeing here in Deuteronomy 24 is, is basically Moses' response to what was happening. You see, it was a concession. It was a concession to the situation that was going on during that time. It wasn't at all a principle concerning marriage and divorce. It wasn't God's design or vision for marriage and divorce. Rather, it was a concession. This was happening, and so Moses had to lay down some laws to control what was going on, to deal with the chaos that was happening among his people. And so he said, listen, if divorce is going to happen, it had to take, take place like this. And so this is what the law was basically saying. The law basically taught three things. First, it stated that you couldn't just divorce your wife for any and every reason under the sun. Instead, Moses says, divorce is only an option if you find some indecency in her. Now, in a moment, we'll talk about the further problems that that phrase caused. But what it was meant to do was to prevent men from citing any excuse that he wanted in terms of why he was going to divorce his wife. Essentially, Moses was stating that, the, that divorce was only permitted for acceptable reasons, that there had to be an acceptable reason as to why you divorce your wife. Secondly, the law stated that if a man wanted to divorce his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce. And, and we get why that makes sense, right? Because it was no longer going to be possible for a man just to kick his wife out of the house, and now she's out in the world, and she has no proof that this happened, and this is legitimate, and, and, and her life is destroyed. That's not going to happen in, anymore. Instead, Moses says, if you're going to divorce your wife, you need to give her a certificate of divorce so that it would prevent her from living a life of suffering. And then thirdly, the law says this. It says, if a man divorces his wife, he couldn't just go back and marry her again. Now, that might seem a little confusing as to why God would say that. Like, if, if you divorce your wife, why wouldn't you want them to get back together again if it's possible? You see, the point of this part of the law was to make sure that men thought twice before making such a serious decision. Right? That they weren't just hasty about it or they weren't just thoughtless about it. To remind them that what he is doing is permanent. That once it is done, that it can't be undone. 
right, to prevent these hasty decisions from happening. They're saying, once it's done, once you divorce your wife, your wife can't come back to you and pretend like everything's okay again. It's done, it's done. And so when we look at this Deuteronomy 24, we see that the, the heart of the Mosaic law is different than what the Pharisees say, right? The heart of the Mosaic law is to, to stress the importance of marriage, to protect the, the lives of innocent women, and to, to cause men to think twice before making such a permanent decision. But you see, the Pharisees uh, dealt with this in typical Pharisee fashion. You see, these, these leaders could care less about the heart of the law Instead, they were focused on the technicalities. They were trying to figure out real hard how can they keep the law while doing the bare minimum, right? How can they keep the law by doing the bare minimum? And so we see an instance of this in Matthew chapter 19. You see, what we just read right now in Matthew chapter 5 is called the Sermon on the Mount. And so he's preaching to his followers, his disciples. And, and without a doubt, there's going to be Pharisees and other people that are listening to Jesus teach and talk as he's there. And so the Pharisees must have heard this section of the, ser the Sermon on the Mount. And so they probably had uh, went back and, and kind of deliberated with other Pharisees and other leaders and said, you know, Jesus said this particular thing about Deuteronomy 24. Let's kind of return back and ask him a series of questions as to what he really means by what he said, right? And so let's take a look at when this happens in Matthew chapter 19. This is verse 3. It says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, what you need to know right from the beginning is this isn't some sort of genuine question, right? The Pharisees are not coming and really just desiring to know what Jesus has to say about this. They're looking to trap him, as the text says, right? Because the truth is, the Pharisees knew all about the Mosaic law. Right? Day in and day out, they gave themselves to the Mosaic Law. They were studying it and picking it apart. They literally would memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. Right? So they knew exactly what the Mosaic Law had to say about marriage and divorce. But you see, the reason why they were asking this question was because they wanted to hear what Jesus would say about this. Because when they do, when they do hear what Jesus has to say, they can use what he says to pin him up against what, what they believe Moses had taught in Deuteronomy 20, 24. So essentially, this is what they're asking. They're saying, listen, Jesus, when is it okay for a man to divorce his wife in a way where he would be good with God and that he would be good with the people around him and that he wouldn't be breaking any laws, right? What would that look like? For a man to divorce his wife where God is okay with him and people are okay with him and he's not breaking any laws, what would that look like? What would that instance look like? Because you see, the reason why they're asking that is during this time when uh, Jesus is there and he's being asked his questions, there's sort of two primary camps in the way that people were interpreting De Deuteronomy 24, right? Two different uh, ways that people read the word indecency and how they interpret it. Because you see, the word indecency is sort of an ambiguous term, right? It can be understood in a bunch of different ways. And so Jews were constantly arguing about what it actually meant. And so on one side, there was a conservative group, right? And so when they heard Moses say the word indecency, they understood it to mean adultery, right? And so they would say, listen, the only lawful reason for you to be able to divorce your wife is if she committed adultery. But then on the other hand, there was a more liberal group that said that the term indecency 
covered a multitude of reasons, right? And so literally, and, and this was written into something called the Mishnah, which was just a book of laws that, that Jews had and the leaders had. They said, if your wife was no longer attractive to you, divorce. That's an option. Literally, it said, if your wife spoiled dinner and you didn't like the way that she was providing for you, cooking for you, divorce was an option. The Mishnah would literally say that if you, don't, if you wake up one morning and you feel like you just don't love her anymore, divorce is an option. You see, every reason was a good enough reason to be able to divorce your wife. And so they're coming up to Jesus and they're asking him this morning, what's your opinion, right? Sort of like, which camp do you fall into, right? What's a good enough reason to be able to divorce your wife? And so listen to what Jesus says. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, what Jesus is doing here is exactly what the Pharisees didn't expect him to do. Because you see, in, in their culture, and if we were to be honest, in our own culture, when it comes to having conversations about marriage and divorce, uh, we tend to focus on the circumstances of what's going on in our lives, right? When we're having conversations about marriage and divorce, uh, what we tend to do is we'll tend to, tend to say things like, he said this, right? Or, or she said this, or my husband did this to me, or my wife would just never do this for me. Or my husband promised that he would do this. Or my, my wife lied about this part of her life. And because he did this or she did this or because he didn't do this or she didn't do this, that's why divorce is justified. You see, we come to these conversations with usually with the intention of finding out an acceptable reason for us to get out of marriage. And so that's what the Pharisees were doing as well. They were coming to this conversation, trying to figure out what is an acceptable reason for us to get out of marriage. But we see what Jesus is doing here is completely the opposite. Jesus is responding to their question by presenting the primary reason why we should be staying in marriage. Do you get that? The Pharisees are going and saying, what is an acceptable reason? Give me an acceptable reason as to why I can get out of marriage. And Jesus responds and says, listen, what you really need to hear is the primary reason as to why you should be staying in marriage. He says, listen, before considering acceptable reasons to get out of your marriage, there's something about marriage that I need you to know and to hear and to be reminded of. And so what does he do? He points us back to Genesis chapter 2, to the beginning. And he says this. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that there are no longer two, but one flesh. So Jesus is saying, listen, maybe you don't know this, right? Or in all honesty, maybe no one's ever told you this before. Or, or maybe you just need to be reminded. But when a man and a woman leave their father and mother, and they join together, they are united to one another, and they become one. 
You see, the two, there were once two, become one. And that's how it's been ever since the beginning. He's saying, listen, marriage is much more than just a license from the state. Or, or marriage is much more than just a personal uh, commitment to one another that you have. When two people come together in marriage, they truly and mysteriously become something that they were never before. The two become one. And so they're no longer two individuals. They become inseparable. So Jesus is saying this. Listen, Pharisees, what you're essentially asking me to do is this. You're asking me to answer, when is it okay to take something that God has made into one and to make it two again? And I realize what some of us may be you know, thinking to ourselves. Maybe we're saying, listen, I hear that, right? I hear that. I really do. I've heard that before, maybe. I've heard it said. Maybe I even heard it on the day of my wedding, and I remember it being said. But I don't think you understand my situation. You see, my husband has done this. Or my wife just won't do this. My circumstance is really hard. I'm totally justified in seeking a way out right now. And Jesus is responding and saying, listen, I'm not trying to downplay any of that. Right? He's not trying to downplay it. He, he understands there's been real hurt that's been placed against you. There's been real sin committed. And he's saying, listen, I get it. I really do. And we do need to deal with those things that have happened in your marriage. But before we do, I need you to understand something. You see, God created marriage to be permanent. And God created marriage to be a covenant. You see, later on in this, in this letter called Ephesians, a, a man named Paul, this apostle Paul, teaches that marriage is much more than just about two people and their own stories. Instead, marriage was meant to be a reflection of God's covenant love towards us, the, the relationship that exists between Jesus and the church. And so as Christians, our marriages are supposed to reflect Christ's love for us, the way that he has forgiven those who are guilty. The way that he loved us even when we were unfaithful in every way. The way he pursued us even when we wanted nothing to do with him. The way that he sought reconciliation with us even when we were the ones that were in the wrong. And the way that he promised to never leave us nor forsake us no matter what the circumstance may be. And so, you see, when God brought you and your spouse together, he did so so that your relationship would communicate to the entire world the covenant love that God has for you and what he has done through his son. And so what the Pharisees are asking to do is, is for Jesus to do is to give permission for marriage to be something that it's not, to take what God has made into one and to somehow make it two again, to take what God has made to be a reflection of his love for us and to present it as though it's easily broken. In other words, what you're really trying hard to do is figure out what makes divorce permissible. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you really understood what marriage was really about, I think the question you would really be asking yourself is this, is divorce even possible? Not is it permissible, is it even possible? Listen to what a counselor named Jay Adams says about marriage and divorce. He says, if marriage were of human origin, then human beings would have a right to set it aside. But since God instituted marriage, only he has the right to do so. 
Marriage is an institution which includes individual marriages. It's subject to the rules and regulations set down by God. Individuals may marry, be divorced, and be remarried only if, when, and how he says they may without sinning. The state has been given the task of keeping orderly records, etc., but it has no right nor competence to determine the rules for marriage and for divorce. That prerogative is God's. And as you see, this is why Jesus says in Matthew 5 that if a man divorces his wife and then she remarries, it's adultery. Why does he say that? Because you see, you may have recognized a divorce, and maybe the state may have recognized a divorce, but there's a possibility that your Father in heaven has not recognized what you have done. And so we can have opinions about things, and we can make rules about things, and we can change rules about things, but it doesn't change the reality of what marriage is and what is true of you. Jesus said, the two shall become one, truly and mysteriously, and what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so the Pharisees hear this, and they immediately respond, and this is what they say. They said to him, why then... Did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Right? They're pushing back and they're saying, listen, this same Moses who wrote Genesis, this same Moses who knew the Mosaic law, then why did he command us to give a certificate of divorce to send your wife away? And Jesus says this. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning... It was not so. Jesus is saying this, listen. He's saying, Moses allowed you to get a divorce, but he didn't command you to do one, to get one. Jesus is saying, listen, Pharisees, you know the history of your people, right? You remember that men were kicking their wives out of their home, and, and they had no option. They had nowhere to go or nothing that they could do for themselves. And so in order to protect these women, Moses allowed for divorce. But from the beginning, it was not so. That wasn't the intention of marriage. It wasn't the, the design of marriage or the purpose of marriage. That was merely a concession, not at all what God intends for marriage. And so then Jesus goes on to say this. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. You see, after pointing us back to Genesis and showing us the, the purpose and the permanence of marriage, Jesus finishes by his teaching by talking to us to allow us to have the conversation where an exception can be made and divorce may be permitted. But before we unpack that quickly, I just want to take a moment to say this. If we've gotten to this point of the sermon, right, and you find yourself more interested or maybe even more excited about still finding a way out of your marriage than believing in reasons to stay in your marriage, then something may be off in your heart. Something may be wrong with what you're believing, what's going on within you, and you may have, at this point, completely missed what Jesus is saying. Because you see, God's will for marriage is that it would be something of togetherness and permanence. And so what you and I need to be yearning for and asking God for and, and asking for the grace for is that we would yearn for those things, not looking for a loophole to get out, and so if you're here this morning, and even in this moment, if you're here this morning and you feel your heart bent in that direction, still feeling like I need a justified reason to be able to get out of my marriage, then I would encourage you to ask the Lord right now to correct your heart, 
to remind you of what he has said about the origin and purpose and the definition of what marriage is and what is meant to look like, to move your heart from seeking technicalities to seeking togetherness. Ask the Lord to help you with that. But with that being said, Jesus concludes this section by giving a reason where divorce may, not must, but where divorce may be permitted. And he uses the term sexual immorality. You see, uh, uh, to be honest, theologians and scholars from all throughout history have been kind of talking through this and, and debating about what this means. People who love Jesus and, and love people and love their scripture and are studying it have seen this and understood this differently. And so even as we approach it this morning, I want to, to really be able to approach it humbly and with sensitivity. You see, the Greek word that's being used here in this section is the term porneia, right? And so some people have understood the meaning of this word differently. You see, some refer to this word porneia as, as it being meaning uh, what happens during an engagement period and infidelity during engagement period. You see, when, uh, during Jesus' time, when two people got engaged, it was considered a legally binding relationship, right? Something that was understood and recognized by the law. And so when a man and a woman got engaged, it was a big deal. And so when they were engaged, if a man finds out that his wife has been unfaithful to him during the engagement period, he would have the ability and he would be permitted to divorce her during that time. You see, most of us here are familiar with that story because it's actually the story of Mary and Joseph, right? Because remember, Joseph was betrothed or engaged to Mary, and he finds out that she's with child. And so the assumption during that time is that she has been unfaithful, that she has been unfaithful, and now she's pregnant. And so he, the, the text says that he decides that he's going to secretly allow her to, to be divorced, right? To silently do so as to remove any type of shame, not bring shame onto her family and to herself. And you see, if he had done that, he would have been permitted to do that according to the law because this was grounds for divorce. And so there's one camp that says that, that say, listen, porneia, this word porneia, what that means is infidelity during the engagement period. So that if that happens, you're allowed to, per you're permitted to be able to divorce your wife during that time. And that the only acceptable reason or the only acceptable opportunity for divorce is during the engagement period. But once you're married, you stay married. At that point, divorce is no longer a consideration. And then there's another camp, right, who look at the term pernia and say it's much broader than that. Right? That it refers to any type of sexual sin that happens within the context of marriage. You see, what they base this on is they, they think this. They say, listen, when a man and a woman right, engage in sexual relationship, it is understood as being a renewal of the covenant that they have made with one another. That on the day of their wedding, they entered into a covenant relationship with one another. And so when they are sexually uh, engaging with one another, it is a renewal of the covenant that they have made on their wedding day. So they say this, if that's true, then if a spouse enters into a sexual relationship with someone other than their husband and wife, then that covenant that they entered into is now broken through that physical activity. You understand that? Right? This renewal is supposed to happen when they engage in sex. And yet, if they engage sexually with someone other than their spouse, then that covenant is now broken through what they have, what they have done. In other words, what this camp says is, listen, they say they see sexual sin of various kinds, whether it's 
adultery or homosexuality or whatever it might be, they see that as being the definition of porneia and the only grounds for divorce. That if some sexual sin happens within the context of marriage, you are permitted to be able to divorce your spouse. And yet, others still go outside of the gospel of Matthew and they cite one more reason, right? So Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 7 says this. He says, if a Christian man or woman is married to a non-Christian, right, and they are married, and that non-Christian person decides that they no longer want to be married anymore, and they leave that marriage, or they get divorced, and they no longer want to be with that person anymore, well, that Christian is no longer bound to that marriage any longer, right? You see, at every instance, we will encourage and support marriages to stay together, whether it's Christian or non-Christian or, or combination. We want marriage to be the case. But in an instance where a Christian is married to a non-Christian, the non-Christian decides that they no longer want to be a part of this marriage any longer, the Christian is no longer bound to be a part of that marriage. So what are we saying here? You see, it seems like the Bible is explaining two explicit examples where divorce is permissible. In sexual immorality, whether that means in the context of an engagement or within the, the, the realm of marriage, sexual immorality is one instance, or if you're deserted by an unbelieving spouse. Two explicit reasons why divorce may be permitted in the scriptures. But even as I say that, let me just say this. I really am sympathetic to and yet extremely cautious about finding other grounds for divorce. You see, on the one hand, I think it is possible that God did not explicitly mention every potential ground for divorce in the scriptures. There may be other rare and extremely painful and awful cases where divorce may be permitted. And yet I realize at the moment that I say that, what happens is someone needs to figure out what is an acceptable case and what isn't an acceptable reason as to why to get a divorce. And that's why I think that it's much more helpful and much more wise for us to deal with these cases individually. That after much honest weeping and studying and praying and seeking counsel, that we would trust the Lord to provide clarity based on the, the principles that he has given us in his word about what marriage and divorce is. So here's what we're saying. We're saying regardless of where we may land on the question of when divorce is permissible, I think what the Bible makes crystal clear to us in every passage is this, that marriage is permanent, that marriage is a covenantal commitment in which one man and one woman become one, that marriage is glorious and beautiful and that once you're in it, you're in it for life. That that was God's design and purpose for marriage. And that God's will, God's will is that divorce wouldn't happen. But that when it does happen, that it would be rare and exceptional and tragic cases. You see, what I think here is that Jesus' intention here is not for us to focus on the exception, but rather for us to focus on the purpose and the meaning of marriage and have that drilled down deep into our hearts and ingrained into our hearts. So what does this all mean for us? I want to close this morning by helping us to make this personal, figure out how this applies. First, I want to just address married folks. 
If you're here this morning and your marriage is a mess, I want to encourage you to fight for three things. First, I want, you, I want to encourage you to fight to believe God. That God did indeed create marriage to be beautiful. That God indeed create marriage to be a gift. That even your own marriage, as you're sitting here this morning, is a gift to you. That your marriage is meant to be a reflection of God's covenant love towards you. And so if you're sitting here this morning and your marriage is a mess, I want to encourage you to ask God that you would be able to love your spouse in the way that God has loved you. Ask him to help you to forgive. Ask him to help you to pursue your spouse, maybe in a way that you haven't in such a long time. Ask him to help you so that you would seek reconciliation with your spouse, even if it is that your spouse is in the wrong. Fight to believe this morning that the gospel, that the gospel is powerful enough to redeem your marriage, no matter how broken your marriage may be, no matter what you think your marriage may look like right now, fight to believe God and fight to obey him even this morning. Second, I want to encourage you to fight against divorce. You see, not just fight to believe God, but even actively fight against divorce. I want to encourage you this morning to remove the word divorce from your vocabulary. If that means that on the ride home today that you reach out to your spouse and say, listen, no matter what may happen, no matter what we may go through, divorce is never going to be an option for us. We're not going to entertain that thought. The gospel is deep enough to, to forgive the deepest of sins. The, the gospel is powerful enough to redeem the, the most broken of marriages. And so divorce is never going to be an option for our marriage. Fight against divorce. Regardless of what your family may be telling you, what your friends may be telling you, what the world around you may be telling you, regardless of what may be your own heart is telling you, I want to encourage you this morning to fight against divorce. And then I want to encourage you, finally, to not fight alone. You see, the most dangerous way to fight against divorce is in isolation and in the dark. If you're sitting here this morning and you guys are struggling in your marriage, I want to encourage you again today, don't delay to tell someone about what's going on in your marriage. If that means that on the way home, you make a call to somebody, if that means you text someone to say, listen, I need to meet up with you this week, we need to talk. If that means talking to your GCM this week, the small groups here, or talking to your soul care groups, telling someone, talking to your pastors, meeting with a counselor, whatever it may be, you need to make a commitment this week that you're not going to fight alone in isolation or in the dark. You see, there's no need at all for you to be afraid or ashamed all you have is an opportunity to have other people walk alongside you in this struggle. And if you're here this morning and you're single, my encouragement to you this morning is to remember that marriage is the uniting of two dreadfully sinful people for life. You need to hear that. And so the result will be that there will not be any perfect marriages. And so if you're single and you're here today and your ideal is for a perfect marriage, I need you to know right off the bat, it's not going to happen. It's the result of a fallen world. Our sinfulness will lead us to find conflict and difficulty within the context of marriage. And yet, and yet, the purpose of marriage is to point us 
to the true and faithful lover of our souls. And so the way to prepare for marriage is to draw closer to him, to understand from him what he is like and the way that he has dealt with you. And so my prayer would be that if and when that day comes for you to be united to someone, that the gospel would shape and define every aspect of your life and your marriage, that you would treat your spouse in the way that God has treated you, that you would be soaking so deeply in the gospel during your years of singleness that it would prepare you to figure out what it looks like for that to translate into your relationship in marriage as well, that your marriage would truly point us to the greater covenant that exists between Jesus and the church. And then finally, if you're here this morning, and if you've gone through a divorce, the first thing that I want you to know is that we love you. We really do. I want you to know right off the bat, we don't look down on you. We're not talking about you. We, we deeply love you. You see, I understand that some of your divorces were the examples of those hard and painful and exceptional cases that Jesus was referring to in the scriptures. And yet for some of you, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a sinful decision. Either way, I want you to know that we really do love you. As I said before, there are way too many nuances and, and specifics to each of our stories that I think it would be neither helpful nor wise for me to try to stand from the pulpit and try to parse out what you should be doing and what God's will for you may be next in this stage of life. But instead, I want to encourage you in two ways. First, I want to encourage you to remember the gospel that there is much grace given to the brokenhearted, that there is much grace offered to those who are sinful, that there is great forgiveness and redemption available to those who seek him, that whatever your situation or your story may be, I want to encourage you to believe and to obey what God says in his word. For some of you, that might mean that you need to reconcile back to a spouse that you once left. For some of you, that might mean that you may have to stay single because of the decision that you made concerning your previous marriage. Whatever it might be, no matter how painful or how difficult you might be, it might be, I want to encourage you to remember the love that God has for you, that his intention isn't to harm you or to hurt you, but to provide you with the fullness of life to make you more like Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning to ask the Lord for the grace to believe and to live out the gospel in your life and to obey what it is that he may be leading you to do. And secondly, what I want to encourage you to do is to wrestle through these things, work through these things in community. Don't run from the church, but instead allow the church to be a place where you find grace and fellowship. You see, Seven Mile Road wants to be a place where you can be honest about what you're going through, your thoughts, your feelings in your life, that you can be transparent with one another and that you can wrestle through your questions together. You see, we want to be a place where you can find both comfort as well as confrontation. You see, we will weep with one another. We will walk alongside one another. We will mourn with one another in, in, in terms of what you are going through in your life. But we will also seek truth together. We will remember the gospel together and point one another towards obedience. And both are needed, comfort as well as confrontation. We want to be comforted by the gospel and yet be confronted by the gospel as well. And we want this to be a place where both is able to be found. So don't do it alone. 
please don't do it alone. God has graciously given you a community to help you walk through this stage of your life. You see, God knows that Seven Mile Road is not at all filled with perfect marriages. But our hope is this, right? That God may help us to see that marriages are beautiful. That they're a representation and a reflection of what God has done for us. That God would help us uh, to fight hard against sin in marriage. That he would keep us holy and obedient to him because that is where the fullness of life is found. And that God would help us so that our marriages would reflect to the world the great love that Jesus has for us. And that it would point many to the covenant that Jesus offers to those who love him. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful that even as we come to you this morning, that we do not need to pretend, that you don't invite us to come and to pretend to be someone or pretend to think something that we currently do not, but instead you invite us to come as we really are, that in our brokenness you invite us to come, in our unbelief you invite us to come and you meet us there. We're so grateful that your word deals with all sorts of things, deals with even hard things, so that we would be able to hear what you have said and be transformed by your truth. Lord, we confess that we have all sorts of thoughts and opinions about all sorts of things, even about what marriage looks like and when divorce may be permissible. I pray, Lord, that you would cover our hearts and our minds with your truth instead, that we would be convinced of what you have said, that we know that we serve a good father who loves us, who has provided for us, who knows what is right and true and what is best for our lives, and we would trust. I pray for all of us who, who are here. Father, for us who are dealing with hard marriages, would you come and would you redeem? Would you give people the strength even today to say divorce is not an option? That no matter what may happen, we are not looking for a way out. We're looking and fighting to stay in. For folks who are here who are single, would you give them continually a great vision for the way that you have loved them? May that shape their understanding and their desire and their picture of what marriage would look like. And for those of us who are here who have been divorced, Lord, would you give them great comfort in the gospel? Help them to know that they are not second-rate by any means, but that you love them deeply, that you care for them deeply, and that you have been providing for them deeply. May, the, may the, the gospel be a bomb to their heart and to their soul, and yet may they be confronted with truth so that they would be obedient to wherever it is that you are leading them. Lord, no sermon is able to do that. Only the Holy Spirit of God is able to. So we ask our Lord that you would respond and that you would do in ways that we cannot. Please help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.